Well, it's good to see you all here. Merry Christmas. Um, this, this was kind of this discussion that Protestant churches had this year. Do we, do we meet in person on Christmas morning or, you know, and I think they're saying like 60 something percent of churches just decided we're going to do it virtual this morning, which I totally get, right? Cozy Christmas at home, but, um, we were thinking, God, it just feels important to be together. And, um, and I love seeing you all here. Thanks for being here. This is, uh, this is like the moment for Christianity. This is the hope. This is where all of the peace promised to this world stems from this moment that we celebrate here today. And um, it's wonderful to have you guys all here. I want to light our candles for our final time of Advent together. And um, we, we remember each of our themes, um, which these paintings correspond with. First hope and then peace joy, and then love. And Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And we get to light our center candle, the Christmas candle. Amen. So um, we have been doing Advent now for a month, and um, I, I love this season. It's just a time of really letting this story sink in, and we digest it. We look at it from all kinds of angles. We hold on to so many of these beautiful themes. I am so thankful for Beth, who's here this morning, who uh, led us in um, our times of reflection on the art and um through these themes, we looked at a, a different set of themes this year in our evenings um, that correspond really seeing the story through Mary's eyes, the theme of accepting, followed by the theme of wait, no, theme of waiting, followed by the theme of accepting, journeying, and finally birthing. And as we come to this story, we, we celebrate this miracle that... Uh, C.S. Lewis called the grand miracle, the miracle that defines all other miracles. And, um, and Christmas is, is filled with this sort of miraculousness to it. Um, I, I was reading this statistic this morning from the physicist Neil Tyson was saying that in order for Santa in 24 hours to hit every single home, he's got to do 25,000 homes a second pretty spectacular, right? <laughs> and I think sometimes when, when we as humans come up with something miraculous, basically what we do is come up with something impossible and then claim that it was possible. And this is generally how we create these stories that are larger than life, these legends. But, but the miracle that we celebrate here at Christmas is, is a very different one. These are the kind of miracles that, that God tells, these deep, profound truths that at their center include paradox, something that we would assume are opposites that are held to, in this beautiful sort of tension. And Christmas is this story of this cosmic glory and then this Fragile, fragile humility. 
this idea of a God who empties himself. These are not the kind of miracles we come up with, but the way that God shows us the depth of who he is. We think we understand love, and then we see Christ, a love that sacrifices itself for the sake of the world. And this is called the Paschal Mystery. And Paul kind of identifies it there for us in Philippians 2, where he talks about this humility that empties itself, becoming man, dying for us, and being drawn into glory. My favorite Christmas movie, I think probably if I had to pick just one, I probably would pick Charlie Brown. And I love this, you know, symbol that we're given in this movie, right? This tiny little tree that he buys. It's his big screw up, right? As he, uh, refuses to buy the aluminum tree, which I don't, was that a thing? Did people make aluminum Christmas trees? I mean, that's, that's what he's supposed to go and buy, right? The big shiny sparkly one. And turns out he can't even do that, right? And so in, in frustration, you know, he says, I guess I really don't know what Christmas is all about. And then shouts out, isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? And leave it to sweet little Linus to get up and say, oh, I know what Christmas is all about. And he says, and there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. you. shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. And the sweetness of that, the the sweetness of the delivery of this young boy telling this story, showing us what is right at the center, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And Savior is is a term that actually doesn't appear that frequently in Scripture. It is who Jesus is, but, but it's a word that sometimes we, we don't quite understand saved from what. It's interesting if we look at the root of that word save, from it we get the word salve. This idea of a healing that Jesus has done. That he comes to earth to heal our hearts, to hear, heal our souls. But from what? What is the, what is the poison? What is the sickness? And, and it's, I think just simply this, it's, it's our pride. That there's this thing in man that desires separation, self-power, 
the essence of this is this hubris that says, I can do it myself. This desire for self-sufficiency has left us broken and, and functioning with a limp. And Jesus has come to repair our hearts, to bring healing to not just our hearts, but to the world. It's a new creation moment that occurs, and it occurs in a stable, and it occurs in humility. In meekness, this love shows its power. And as we look at that nativity scene, which we see all over, you have these small little group of spectators there, intimately watching this moment. Shepherds and wise men, a mother and a father, and an angelic host overhead. And the church father Ignatius would encourage us when we look at scripture to imagine ourselves there. He would say, picture yourself in the place of that shepherd. Picture yourself as that wise man. Picture yourself as Joseph or as Mary. What do you see as you look at this story through their eyes? And last night at the Christmas Eve service, we talked a bit about the shepherds and the wise men, these uh, very opposite ends of the social spectrum, right? You have the shepherds who have nothing, <laughs> shepherds who own nothing, shepherds who are considered unclean. They can't even come into the temple to worship, shepherds who couldn't testify in court, their word wasn't considered trustworthy, become the ones who testify. They get the special invitation. An angelic host singing to them. And their response, I love, they say, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And there's something about this where it's not just a, a thing that we get to um, ponder a truth that we get to digest, but it's an event that we get to enter into and experience. Those guys had a, a front row seat. I talked about last night how these wise men were um, on the other side of this, the ones who had everything, the ones who had all the power and possession they could ever want. And we see so clearly that it wasn't enough. That these men left everything to go and find a greater truth. They stared to the cosmos trying to find their home, this home they couldn't create here on earth. And so with that longing, the wise men travel all the way to Bethlehem. They look for Jesus first in the palace, right? Because of course that's where he's going to be. That's where we tend to look. Right, The aluminum tree, not the tiny little one. But they follow that star all the way to Bethlehem and kneel. And certainly the timeline would be different. The shepherds would be there you know, much earlier than the wise men. But I think there's something kind of beautiful about picturing them there at the same time. Both kneeling together. And you see in this beautiful humility how indifferent heaven is to all of our possessions and fame and the things that we consider to be so important. 
I love how uh, when Thomas Aquinas, he wrote this Summa Theologica, this enormous volume, five volumes of just brilliant philosophy and theology about who God is. And then at the end of his life, had this moment where God was there. Heaven and earth came together for him and he had a vision. And his response after that was to look at all his writings and say, it's straw. And it's not straw, it's brilliant, right? But he's going, oh, to, to know these things is one thing, but to experience these things is everything. In this story, I think we are invited into to experience in a similar sort of way to live into this story because it's our story as well. As I've been thinking about this story, the, the person who I thought I would focus on today a little bit is, um, is Joseph. He's a sort of interesting character in this story. And I think about how each of these characters goes through some of their own sort of salvation moments as they're drawn into this scene. And as I picture myself as Joseph, I get stuck in these early verses. It says um, in Matthew 1, verses 18 through 21, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and she will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, I told you I get stuck there. I, I, I think this verse, when his mother, when, um, when Mary, who had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, and her husband Joseph, being unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. This, to me, is like this moment that's scripted, right? Nothing, nothing wrong has occurred here. This is just how God has decided to bring these events to be. Mary is given this child, and Joseph is trying to figure out what in the world happened. Well, he does. He knows, right? He knows it wasn't him. It's not my kid, and my fiance is pregnant. And I go, oh my gosh, the feelings he must have had. Betrayal. He's been lied to. This deep resentment. Humiliation and shame. How his pride, that poison in him must have just burned, right? How dare she? And when you think about that culture, what he would have been justified to do. We know that in John 8, we're told about a woman caught in adultery being brought out before Jesus and they're ready to kill her publicly. And Joseph is a just man. This, this means he has this Righteous standing in the eyes of his community. He keeps the law. He knows the law well. And Joseph in this, instead of clinging to his rights, <clears throat> resolves in his heart to protect her, 
And I think what a powerful moment that is when we think about salvation and what God is here to do. It's there to cure us from that thing in us that just wants our way. That's what that poison does to our hearts. It says, nobody's going to do that to me. Or it takes justice and righteousness and it wields it to its own end. And I think this moment, it reminds me of like Abraham and Isaac. It's this test of this man's heart because the angel could have come to him and said, whoa, whoa, whoa. That child is from the Holy Spirit. But instead the angel waits until he resolves in his heart to respond softly. And then the angel comes and goes, all right, turns out, which would have been wonderful news for Joseph. Wonderful news to know that his beloved has been faithful, that their marriage is blessed, except it was disastrous to him publicly. That to then take her as his wife made him look not only foolish, but he had, he had lost his righteousness because he would be accused then of having imp- um, impregnated her. And we know this from the story as he travels to Bethlehem. He would have had family there that would have taken him in, except nobody does. Joseph has essentially ruined his reputation. And I think about, man, this is God's plan, this huge disruption. And man, if I was Joseph and I did this for God and I got all the way to Bethlehem and then realized there was no room for us there, I think my response would have been, really, God? Not even a place for my wife to have a child, her child. And this idea, this part of the story, it's just so foreign to us, right? We think of a God who just blesses us with a a sort of make our lives easier, make our lives simpler. But we follow this God that disrupts our lives and in there creates this opportunity for deep work to occur. I heard something recently where Elizabeth Gilbert was saying All of us after the age, she said, after the age of 35, maybe 40, all of us could write a memoir saying, this is not what I had planned. (laughs) It's true. Our lives are disrupted just like his in different ways. That, That God has this way of coming in and taking us in very different directions than we intended to go. When I write the story of my life, it's something like, Jeff lived a very comfortable life. It was cozy and warm. Everybody was happy. Nobody got sick. Everything was joyful. Everybody sort of adored him. And then he died quietly in his sleep. Something like that, right? And and I think God goes, oh, it's boring. It's so boring. (laughs) And I think he comes in and says, there's so much more. I want to save you from from this thing that like seeks to control everything. And I want to bring you into relationship with me, which means you're going to have to trust me. I'm going to take you through situations that are going to feel very dangerous, but I'll go with you. 
And Joseph has this wonderful thing in his story where God shows up to him in dreams. These angels come visit him and say, okay, time to go here. Okay, now you can go here. Time to go back. And I think that sounds so precarious, but the truth is our lives in so many ways are like that as well. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know if everything's going to be fine or if there's a disruption around the corner. What we do know is that we have a shepherd that goes with us. I like how C.S. Lewis says, the great thing, if one can, is to stop regarding all the unpleasant things as interruptions of one's own or real life. The truth is, of course, that what one calls the interruptions are precisely one's real life. The life God is sending one day by day. I think this is true. That the interruptions are our story. They are our opportunity. Joseph models this, I think, so beautifully for us. That when his life is interrupted, he responds in humility. Selflessly. And this is our opportunity as well. And God opens our eyes by getting our attention in the interruptions. He gives us the opportunity to step in and to live the kind of life we were meant to live. And it's been said that this world is God's school of love. That this is what he's teaching us how to do. How to love like Christ. How to live in that humility. To have a heart that's been set free from our pride. And he does it by bringing together these opposites. This paradox. G.K. Chesterton says, anyone whose childhood has known a real Christmas has ever afterwards an association in his mind between two ideas that most of mankind must regard as remote from each other. The idea of a baby and the idea of unknown strength that sustains the stars. Bringing together these beautiful opposites and holding them together. Because our lives, like Jesus, follow this downward course of unlearning. Henry Nouwen calls it downward mobility. We follow Christ down because the way down is the way up. He descends in humility and then rises in glory. And that becomes our promise as well. Then in these small little moments of our lives, our hearts change and become like Jesus's. We learn to live with a similar sort of love. And as great as that sounds, it's also something very simple. Love is this enormous thing. And then it's also as simple as patience and kindness. I think of the last couple of years and there's been so much disruption and how my heart always wants to respond in blame or resentment, pointing the finger. I saw this meme the other day and it said, um, oh, let me think, what was it? God, why do you give me the hardest battles? And he responds by saying, I don't. You're my weakest little soldier. And it's just an email, so stop crying. <laughs> but I think we sometimes go through life like that. Oh, these interruptions happen and we're like, why me? Why me? 
But these are opportunities to respond so simply with love and with kindness, with patience, without seeking our own will, but laying ourselves down for others. Many of you are going to be with family today. What a great opportunity in the interruptions that come with family, because they always do. They're always tricky. These become opportunities to love in small little ways. We're reminded by these stories that these are big moments. We see these things as like widow's mites, right? These tiny little things, but in light of heaven, we're told that they're glorious. Because when God looks at our life, he doesn't see all the things that we consider so impressive, or he doesn't look down on the things that we see so meek. He sees our hearts and realizes that's everything. To return that sort of kindness, to, to respond in patience, is to respond like Christ. And what I'm inspired by in Joseph is just this deep trust that he has in each of these moments. And, and we don't get a whole inner monologue of what he was thinking in these moments, but what we see again and again in his response is faithfulness. He becomes this wonderful father to a child not his own, this protector of Mary, and this obedient servant who lost his title, the just or righteous. But what we see instead is this beautiful humility. And to see this miracle, to understand it, is to look through that lens of humility. That is the invitation. There's a poem that I love by uh, William Wordsworth, and I wanted to just read it for us this morning. And it talks about having the eyes to see and how we don't always. Sometimes we miss it because we're not paying attention. And he talks about this night where he sees God's hand at work walking with his little granddaughter who's oblivious to it. And he says, it's a beauteous evening, calm and free. The holy time is quiet as a nun. Breathless with adoration, the broad sun is sinking down in its tranquility. The gentleness of heaven broods o'er the sea. Listen, the mighty being is awake and doth with his eternal motion make a sound like thunder everlastingly. Dear child, dear girl that walkest with me here, if thou appear untouched by solemn thought, thy nature is not therefore less divine. Thou liest in Abraham's bosom all the year and worshipest at the temple's inner shrine, God being with thee when we know it not. That last line, I think, is to me somewhat haunting, that God can be with us and we miss it. It's the risk God takes, I think, in coming in such humility. We can miss it. We don't see it. And we're told that God has lavished this world in his grace and his love but our eyes have to be open. And the way we see it is to lay ourself down in those interruptions and instead respond with humility. That's what it means to receive this self, this healing. My challenge to you all as you go this day, 
is that you could put aside your expectations, your plans, your needs, and that you would seek to be present even in the disruptions. That you would allow God's salvation to soften your heart. And that your eyes would be open to pay attention to the divine miracles today all around you. This promise of God with us. We um, are going to close with a song, but before we do, I just want to read these words of Paul's prayer to the Ephesians. As a prayer for us all this morning, he says, My response is to get down on my knees before the Father, this magnificent Father who parcels out all heaven and earth. I ask him to strengthen you by his Spirit, that Christ will live in you as you open the door and invite him in. And I ask him that with both feet planted firmly on love, you'll be able to take in with all followers of Jesus the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. Reach out and experience the breadth, test its length, plumb the depths, rise to the heights, live full lives, full in the fullness of God. Amen.